Hey everyone, welcome to The Office Hours with Dr. C. This is yet another one of those exceptional weeks in which we switch things up. We're actively recording new content that we're really excited for. It's the kind of excitement you get when you've been forced to practice the piano by your mom until you play Ode to Joy perfectly 10 times in a row, and then you finally get it. You know, that that kind of excitement. That was That was just me. Well, because of our busyness in recording, we decided to fill this week's episode with a deep dive into the archives and finally share a recorded conversation we had with a few friends of ours. At this point, Dr. C and I knew we wanted to start a project together, but we hadn't quite figured it all out yet, including production methods, hosting mechanics, and much more. So in this, please forgive our past younger and stupider selves for the many issues this episode has, because you're going to learn a lot from our main guest, Paul Quadros, Associate Professor of Journalism and Media at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He's an investigative journalist that has written for The New York Times, Huffington Post, Time Magazine, Salon.com, The Chicago Reporter, and a lot more, really. Uh, He's also an author, researcher, and an incredible community member. So in the episode, you're going to come across things like the Browning of America, the David Duke rally, the Great Replenishment, the Great Poultry Collapse of 2009, soccer changing the role of women in the household, and a lot more. It's a journey. Also, I need to make a note. uh, For context, you'll hear us refer to an event simply as El Paso, as if you know what we're talking about. Well, if it wasn't depressing enough... The fact that you may not automatically know what we're talking about at first has more to do with the fact that there have been so many mass shootings since 2019 when we recorded this that referring to the El Paso shooting of 2019 is easily forgotten. It was fresh on our minds at the time and relevant to the discussion, so we used shorthand to talk about it. Just thought it might be a helpful note going into this. As another note, uh, we also referred to a previous interview with a young woman named Eunice about her experience as a high school soccer player and how she uses the sport to bridge cultural gaps as a Latinx youth in high school in the American South. Thank you again for listening. We, we get your comments, your emails, your love letters, the episode suggestions. We're actively recording new episodes based on these suggestions and look forward to sharing more with you. Thanks for your attention. Thank you for your time. Now on with the show with Paul Quadros. Hi, and thank you for listening. This is Gabriel Cruz, or Dr. Gabriel Cruz, I guess. I got to start remember to introduce myself that way. Um, so prestigious. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, thank you for coming, for listening to another episode of uh, Shallow Praxis. And um, uh, my co-host, Barry Thornburg. Hello, I'm Barry Thornburg. I am uh, Assistant Professor of Media Production and Studies. That's as cool as I can make myself sound. I don't know. Okay, I, you were pausing there. <laughs> no, don't you yeah, add more. All no, right. I got nothing. <laughs> That's fair. All right. Uh, and uh, we're talking here today with uh, uh, Mr. Paul Quadros. Ah. Uh, I'm Paul Quadros. I'm an associate professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, in the School of Media and Journalism. And we also have a special guest, Ebony Johnson. Would you please introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Ebony Johnson. I am a MFA candidate now, at least, at the University of North Texas. Um, Associate of Barry 
and I'm excited to be here. I don't know if I have much to contribute, but I'm excited to be here. <laughs> We're happy you're here. We're happy you're here, absolutely. <laughs> we brought Paul in today because Paul is our expert on uh, on the uh, Latinx community uh, in the sort of American South and has a lot of experience with you know, how the kids of, uh, the children of, of migrants from Mexico or you know immigrant children themselves have tried to fit into American society, particularly through sports. So before we get into the interview itself, uh, why don't we talk a little bit about your background, Paul? So uh, you mentioned that you are a professor at UNC Chapel Hill. Yes. Uh, and so can you talk a little bit about uh, what brought you to North Carolina? Because you're not from North Carolina originally. No. I was living in Washington, D.C. I was an investigative reporter for a news organization called the Center for Public Integrity. And... Um, I was working on a, a book project on worker safety issues, and I got really interested in the food processing industry. Uh, this was in the mid-90s, and uh, at that time, you could completely see that the food processing industry was recruiting workers from south of the border, and in some cases, transporting workers into the interior of the United States, and essentially um, triggering a migration of people that was happening into the American South. I was really interested in that, and I moved to North Carolina to report about that, and eventually wrote a book called A Home on the Field, um, which wasn't the book I was really looking to write. Instead, you know, I thought I was going to write this sort of immigration policy wonky kind of book, but uh, A Home on the Field is about a group of high school Latino soccer boys in Siler City, North Carolina, um, and how they came to that town and how they found a home. Uh, in that town or how they built a home in that town and how the longtime residents um, uh, dealt with that uh, change in population. Something I want to uh, touch on, you mentioned the uh, the poultry processing plants that were bringing people in uh, to the American South where there's not been a, a long history of settled Latino communities here in the American South. You've had a lot of migrant uh, families come through and some folks you know, settled here and there. I think um, in my hometown, that's gone back as early as the 70s, but it was sort of sporadic. It was mostly folks who had made just a little bit enough money, buy a house, settle down, that kind of thing. Uh, but this influx of workers from the border uh, into this town in North Carolina really sort of created this sort of big tent for other people to come as well, right? And so what has that, what has sort of, uh, characterized that that chain of my that I say chain of migration, but that that trend, I'd say. Well, uh, you're absolutely right. So here in in the American South, traditionally we've had workers who have come, and they've been seasonal workers. They've worked in agriculture in a seasonal way. So they come here, they work uh, a crop for a period of time, and they move on to a different type of crop, and they move to a different state, and so forth and so on. And that's been very traditional for uh, a number of decades. So what happened in, in the late 80s and 90s was the slaughterhouses, poultry, uh, hogs, and turkeys, and in some cases beef too, although beef is mostly Midwest, um, they began to recruit workers for these plants along the border in Arizona and in Texas, um, advertising along the border in newspapers and on radio and TV, and in some cases uh, transporting workers from the border in buses into the interior of the United States. And once they did that, they, they provided an opportunity for more permanent jobs, factory jobs, mm -hmm. at very low wages to cut chicken all day 
um, in the late 90s, it was like $6 an hour. Um, and that uh, uh, triggered this sort of migration that happened of workers who were looking for permanent jobs in the United States. And so uh, there was a, a sort of ready-made process for that. In addition, you know, if you work at a slaughterhouse, you don't last at a slaughterhouse for very long. So there's high turnover rate at these slaughterhouses. In some cases, a plant will see 100% turnover in its labor force in a year. So you have essentially what's a, a little engine that is constantly needing new workers to feed it. And so at that time, they were getting those workers from south of the border. Uh, those workers would work at a plant for a while, and then they would go off into another industry. And the industry that they ended up working in the most was the construction industry. And that made total sense for the American South in the 90s and the early 2000s because there was so much development in the South. The South has been transformed in the past 30 years from what it was in the past, a sort of you know neglected area of the country to now a booming economy, booming development, residential office. Uh, if um, uh, I remember coming here in 1999, and I can tell you that like Highway 64 and 15501, and these were all like two-lane highways that have since been expanded into four-laners, and development has just exploded all over the Piedmont, the Triangle, and in the Charlotte-Mecklenburg area as well. All, you know, that construction and building and development all done by essentially Mexican labor. And um, so this spurs, you know, the, the sort of booming economy that's happened here in the American South. But the trigger for it was food processing mm -hmm. and remains so in many respects mm -hmm. um, uh, to this day. Although the migration of people from south of the border has dissipated and essentially uh, almost uh, halted in a way. Um, you, you have Mexicans, uh, an equal number of Mexicans who come into the country as leave the country. So we're kind of at this net zero in terms of migration for Mexicans. Today, we have Central Americans who are coming into the country, and they're coming in for different reasons, mostly to escape violence and fear and, um, and other bad things in their countries. So uh, regionally here, we've seen this growth, and we've seen communities challenged by rapid demographic change on essentially both sides. I and mean, we have, you know, cultural communities here that are trying to uh, live with one another get along together with one another, and needing one another economically on both sides. You were talking about bringing in these folks. And to be clear, uh, most, if not all, at least in my understanding, of the folks brought in were undocumented. Um, I think for the most part that's true or unauthorized. Mm -hmm. um, I think the companies uh, uh, were aware of the status of their workers, but... You know, when we say unauthorized, it doesn't mean that they don't have documents because they all had documents. Sure. They were just fake documents. Right. Um, and uh, companies would sort of look the other way in terms of the uh, paperwork that they had. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things in, in, in this sort of uh, question of immigration is, uh, uh, you know, where do employers stand, you know, with this, uh, um, with this question? And uh, there has been efforts to enforce... Uh, against employers, the hiring of unauthorized workers. It always fails, though, and mm -hmm. it fails because the companies will plead that, you know, they are not the immigration service and they're not experts in identifying which documents 
mm-hmm. are bona fide and which documents are fake. Mm-hmm. And so it's not on them. They're not knowingly hiring mm-hmm. undocumented and unauthorized workers. They're hiring workers that have documents and they just go along with it. It's really hard to prosecute them. Sure. And so they, they kind of skirt by on that. Oh, plausible deniability is a heck of a thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, you mentioned the, the high turnover rate. Uh, it was actually during, it, and I know what you mean, it is a high turnover rate in these processing plants because it's not exactly glamorous work and it's hard and you're on your feet for long periods of time. Um, my parents met in a chicken processing plant mm-hmm. uh, because that's a romantic setting. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, I, I am an offspring actually of that, that, uh, that migration uh, pattern. Um, and this is not, just put this in sort of context, this is not unusual practice in uh, as much as we saw recently, because we are recording this on August the 9th, uh, a couple of days ago, there was a mass roundup of uh, unauthorized workers in um, Mississippi. Mississippi, right? Mm-hmm. 680 to 700 yeah. across seven different facilities, I want to say. Sure. Yeah. So this, this might have been different for that area, specifically but uh, for North Carolina specifically but on the whole busing in people or at least creating labor or getting labor from uh, south of the border is not unusual for American businesses um, I mean it's unusual in the sense that it's not as traditional I and mean, this mm-hmm. is a recent phenomenon mm-hmm. and what's happened here is that previously like in in the place where these raids happened in Mississippi and Canton and so forth, um, those poultry workers, uh, have been Latinx, Latino for at least 20 years or so. This is, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, relatively speaking, this is a new phenomenon. Mm-hmm. What's happened is, is that traditionally in these poultry plants previously, we had African American workers that were working in these slaughterhouses. They have since moved on to, uh, other, uh, employment. Um, they've ascended mm-hmm. to other types of jobs. Um, you know, it's the, the lowest rung is cutting chicken all day and nobody aspires to do that. And so, you know, after the civil rights movement, African Americans, you know, began to have more freedom to move into other occupations. And so the food processing industry looked around and said, where are we going to get workers now? And so they turned to south of the border. Parlaying that in, in talking about this migration of, uh, of, uh, Mexicans and Central Americans to, to the American South. People go. People come. They get jobs. They set down set down roots. They have kids, right? So, what happens with those kids? Um, so, I want to get into that conversation a little bit, relative, especially to the interview uh, from uh, from Eunice, um, uh, who spoke on this podcast. Um, when you listen to her interview, is her experience normal uh, for kids uh, to use athletics as a way to sort of integrate into American society? Um, yes, I think it is. Um, just stepping back a bit. So in this migration, um, just to provide some more historical context, you have like a, um, uh, a first round of men who came and worked at these plants. And then somewhere in, the, in about 1995, 97, 98, uh, after several years of working in these plants, they began to bring their families. They began to bring their wives and their girlfriends and their children. And now... You had a completely different phenomenon. Now, you didn't just have sort of workers coming in and working in these communities, which these communities were sort of tolerant of. Um, you know, these, these uh, workers were just sort of isolated and so forth. But now that you had families and little children, 
attending your local schools and, mm-hmm. you know, needing healthcare services and needing other types of services became a completely different phenomenon. And now you begin to see sort of tension in these communities with regard to their newcomer population. And typically, what, what does that what does that tension end up looking like? It ends up looking like, you know, the David Duke rally in the year 2000 in Siler City. It looks mm-hmm. like some of the things or many of the things that we see today, uh, because a lot of the communities here in the Piedmont and North Carolina are really bellwether communities for this issue. And it's, it's sort of like the country has kind of caught up to the fact that demographic shift or change is happening. Um, to go back to like, you know, the situation with the children, you know, football or soccer is a real way to sort of connect uh, with the past or with, you know, the old country, so to speak, mm-hmm. and uh, where soccer dreams are really big and alive. And um, for uh, the kids, you know, uh, remembering, you know, their heroes from Mexico or the Mexican leagues and so forth and wanting to emulate them. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a way to find a piece of home mm-hmm. here. Um, unfortunately, when they, you know, when they first got here, soccer is a relatively new sport in the American South. And, uh, you know, in California and maybe New York and Florida, it isn't or in other parts of the country. But here in the South, it kind of was. Here, the sports were very traditional, baseball, basketball, football. And now this new sport comes in with this new class of people. And, you know, they want things for it. They want space. They want fields. They want programs. They want athletic teams at their local school. Um, and so, you know, that they end up asking the sort of, you know, long time, long standing community to, you know, can we have this space? Mm-hmm. So now there's competition for space, for recreation, for play as well. But yes, for many of the children, you know, soccer or football is, a, is an entree into the society and, uh, you know, feeling less alienated maybe and feeling more at home. It kind of acts as a bridge for both worlds right that you do get this hailing back to uh where you came from but it also launches you into social circles within the new community that you're within is what you're saying yeah i mean you know football is an international sport so i mean everybody around the world plays it and you have that connection with anybody Mm. so when you look at kids that are mexican and kids that are central american they're able to sort of come together and play something you know that everybody understands and knows or kids from other countries, um, you know, kids from Europe or kids from Africa or from Asia, they can all not speak the same language, but if you put a ball in front of them, they're all going to speak the language of football. They're all going to know that game. Yeah, it transcends language and cultural barriers that often get in the way of socializing and, and whatnot. It can, yes. Unfortunately, here in, in the American South, the longtime residents and their kids didn't play the sport. Right. And so for them, it was like, what is this thing, you know? Uh, especially in, in North Carolina, uh, basketball is an institution. Um, Absolutely, yes. You know, uh, I've seen uh, family, I've been at friends' houses and, you know, family arguments get kind of heated over, you know, Carolina or Duke or State. Um, I'm kidding. No one champions State that hard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but in American football as well, right? So like uh, my high school has a, my former high school has a, a week uh, a football program, but the rival high school in the same town uh, absolutely has like, you know, every year it's a big thing. People go and watch. Uh, if they lose a game during the season, it's un- it's considered unusual, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to mention, you know, in like the deep South with like, um, you know, Alabama, 
uh, yeah, in Texas, you know, A&M and all that kind of stuff. So although there have been reports about a decline in American football participation because of the traumatic, um, the CTE uh, concussions uh, concussions happening. And so maybe in the next generation, we'll see if there's a a sort of shift. Um, I don't know if we're ever going to hear, you know, people shout roll tide for a soccer game, but (laughs) right. Yeah. We'll see. I won't be alive. <laughs> so as as these kids are growing up in these communities, and because they're American for you know as Americans anybody else, um, in the in the context of you know being you know first generation uh, Americans, what typifies? Because you've worked with a lot of these kids, yes, uh, over the years. How long have you been coaching soccer? Uh, I'm still coaching soccer at Jordan Matthews uh, High School in Siler City. This is my 18th season. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. It is. <laughs> so what kind of struggles do these kids have to deal with uh, when it comes to fitting into their... You know, there have been different progressions along this line. You know, I, I've seen different um, uh, classes of kids come through JM. So in the beginning, when we started the program in 2002, and uh, that was the first year of the program, those kids are very different from the kids that I get today or the kids that I'm coaching today. Those kids back in 2002 were definitely first-generation immigrants. So um, I like to say that, you know, they were dominant Spanish speakers learning English for the most part. Uh, Their favorite teams were like Cruz Azul Mm -hmm. and uh, Puma and um, uh, America. These are the huge sort of big Mexican league teams. Um, you know, their favorite music was like Norteño music, very traditional Mexican music and, uh, you know, very much, uh, feeling alienated and, um, cut off from the things that they knew Sure, and, and really trying to find a home and trying to create a place for themselves. Um, today that's not true today. The kids that I coach, their favorite like soccer teams are all like Barcelona mm-hmm. or Madrid or in. English Premier League and so forth. They don't look to Mexico, you know, for their teams or their superstars. They're looking to Europe, hmm. much like any other big kind of soccer fan is. Uh, their favorite music is rap, and um, uh, you know they they have different aspirations. Their aspirations mm-hmm. are, are to go on to college, mm-hmm. and uh, so it's a different you know class of mm-hmm. kids because we're seeing a second generation, sure, and uh, who are uh, more Americanized than the first one was. And also have more opportunity uh, in our society than the previous class did. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't still kids that um, may have issues with their immigration status, um, but the majority of them do not. And the majority of them are English speaking or English dominant speaking, mm-hmm. and they still speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I hang on and I coach another 10 years, I'm sure I'm, I'm going to get a class of uh, kids who are going to be Latino but won't be able to speak any Spanish. I'm mm-hmm. sure that's, you know, that's the third generation. By the third generation, you know, they've already lost that second language. So um, I'm not going to hang on that long, <laughs> so I won't see that. Sure. But, um, but we've seen this sort of transition that's happened, mm-hmm. and uh, that's going to happen in the rest of the country mm-hmm. as well. So, you know, while there's you know, all this sort of anxiety and angst about immigrants in the society and and integration and maybe assimilation, you know, those issues are going to fade away with time. 
Mm. And, and so, you know, uh, uh, the fear that people have is really, you know, unfounded in many ways. Mm -hmm. I'd like to feel like, you know, we're always progressing while we have our ups and downs, that we're always progressing in some way as a society to something better than we were. You would. Um, uh, I would like to think that. I'll, <laughs> I'll qualify it that way. Uh, the, uh, unfortunately, though, there are times where the, these downward like trends in our progression as, as a society tend to feel a little bit more uh, uh, deeply rooted than... the. the I don't know. I, I guess I admire your optimism that we are going to get to this point where like w we will be less concerned and less fearful as a society of the other in in this context. But uh, I mean, we we see right now how actually that that fear is actually being stirred up and and um, spread and um, shared more openly than it has in in probably even the last decade. Um, and, and so I just wonder, like, um, is there, is there a situation where we might actually see this, um, take a turn, not, not for like some doomsday-ish, um, horror, but, but, uh, take a turn where culturally we become more hardened to this issue and actually be uh, for the long term. Like, do you see some way where this could actually turn out uh, worse for us long term? Like, if we don't like counteract this in some way now, um, that's a really difficult uh, question to to answer. I mean, all I can do is sort of see uh, what some of these communities have already gone through here. Sure. So when I say that a community like Siler City is sort of a bed bellwether community, or Robins, or you know, any of the sort of Piedmont communities, or or down south in Duplin County or mm -hmm. Thompson County, um, where you've seen this uh, uh, same trend. Um, there are some things that these communities have gone through, uh, and they are not in the same sort of space that the rest of the country has. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I can extrapolate and say, hey, you know, things might turn out the way they're turning out in these communities. And what I've seen is, is uh, and what I've described is like um, this uh, feeling of um, of loss and cultural loss by the long-standing community or the white community uh, in terms of culture and power. And uh, I sort of have seen that community kind of go through the five stages of grief, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of loss and understanding that that is a loss for that community. And I think people have to sort of kind of understand that that's, that's what that community feels. So, um, <clears throat> uh, depression. When I first got to Siler City, I heard all these comments of depression, like, and it was all code, right? It was all, ah, isn't it terrible what's happening to our town? Uh, our town is changing. Isn't that bad? There are a lot of sighs and, um, I mean, it's just feelings of depression that the community was changing community had no control over that change it was being done by industry um and uh it couldn't do anything about it so uh these sort of um you know, i would say in, in spanish expedos these sort of you know releases of size of depression mm. uh, i definitely heard when i first got there and then after you know a couple of years 
you know, we have this anti-immigrant rally, this Klan rally, this mm. David Duke rally, um, and uh, uh, you know that is uh, anger. And you know the country is in an angry phase about this. It's confused. It doesn't understand why the society is changing mm. and what that might mean. And uh, and so anger is just the emotion mm. that people are in now. Uh, the fact is that we have politicians in this country that use that anger, mm -hmm. you know, for their own political ends. And that's a terrible thing. But that happened in Salar City, too. And so that's how we ended up getting that rally. What what the difference was, I think, in Salar City was that the rally kind of really made people look at themselves. Mm. You know, it's a very small town. It's a town of less than 10,000 people. And so people could then sort of decide my anti-immigrant feelings you know, might be my anti-immigrant feelings, but I'm not going to go and support David Duke. There's a line I, I won't cross. So I think the difference, you know, in, in terms of what you're asking is that we have political leaders that are willing to cross those lines and allow people to cross those lines so they can get and support those individuals and their agendas. And that's a terrible thing. So I remain optimistic that we'll sort of deal with that, but uh, understand also the demographics involved in this. So we have an aging white population in the United States. The baby boom population is aging out and it's dying off. And that big sort of bubble that happened after World War II is shrinking. And those particular people did not have as many children as their parents or grandparents did. So you have this sort of baby bust that's happened. And uh, meanwhile, you have this other demographic trend that they call the browning of America in which you have other people that, you know. Sounds like cooking meat. <laughs> you have other people that are growing in population. Some of that is spurred by immigration, but really it is being spurred by births. And that's simply because the population is different. So I look at a town like Siler City, the median age of white people in Siler City is 55 years old. So they're not going to have any more kids. That's done. Uh, the median age for African Americans in Siler City is 45 years old, and they're not going to have any children either. You know, there, there may be one, <laughs> you know, uh, if either they're really lucky or things go terribly wrong, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> uh, the median age for Latinos or Hispanics in Siler City is 25, a very young population. And so it really buttresses against the other demographic trend. You have a community like Siler City, where its entire future is going to be based on those young people that are Hispanic. That is going to be the economic engine for the future in terms of productivity, in terms of consumer uh, buying things, because young people buy stuff. They buy clothes, they buy food for their kids, they buy school supplies, they buy everything. Older people buy health care because that's what they need. They've already bought stuff. So what's really going to drive the economy of these communities is going to be that particular community. Mm -hmm. That's going to be true for the United States as well. So I hope that, you know, the sort of demographic uh, reality here is going to play itself out in this way. The issue I think that is more at play is whether or not we will uh, uh, sort of jury rig a political system in which, you know, that community or those communities will be shut out mm -hmm. and will not be able to participate in it. So there's something that you mentioned just a minute ago, and I want to touch back on it because I think it's uh, it's certainly relevant um, as much now as it was in the late '90s, early 2000s, and that was the matter of the um, like the David Duke rally and that kind of stuff. So uh, I'd mentioned this. I was 
was born in North uh, was born in North Carolina, born in Salter City. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom uh, owned and operated what we think was the first, if not the first, certainly among them, uh, Mexican grocery store and restaurant in North Carolina. Uh, American white woman married to a Mexican man, all that kind of stuff. And uh, we eventually left um, what was otherwise a very lucrative business, uh, but we left Solar City because of things like people throwing bricks through windows, mm-hmm. um, you know, rallies that were held in the public and whatnot. And uh, what struck me about what you said about like the David Duke rally was people saying, okay, well, I might be against immigrants, but I'm not that guy, right? Mm-hmm. So you would hope to think that these acts of violence uh, and these public displays of, of unadulterated hate uh, help people to reflect on their own positions and where they stand with things. And just recently, we saw a, uh, a terrorist, a domestic terrorist attack uh, in El Paso with um, the shooting of uh, uh, Hispanic and Latinx people in a Walmart. Um, and that was, as we understand it, very clearly motivated by uh, racial hatred and that kind of stuff. And I think actually in the person's manifesto, they referenced uh, a fear of Texas turning blue uh, because of an influx of, mm-hmm. of Latinos uh, as if they hadn't been there for centuries know, already. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All these Hispanics in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I've got bad news for you. Um, Who would have thought that yeah. what was formerly Mexico would have what? Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. It's uh, yeah. Uh, and, California and Utah, and Nevada, and there's, but who's keeping yeah. count? Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, so the census is for sure. Um, so after these sort of things, I guess uh, one silver lining is you would like to think that, okay, well, people are seeing this stuff and thinking, okay, well, well how does this relate to me? Because I think uh, people who hold these perspectives hopefully would, would think, you know, on that critically because this is, these aren't isolated incidents. These aren't uh, new by any means. Um, the late 20th century, early, uh, late, uh, 19th, early 20th century was characterized by, you know, lynchings of Mexicans and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So this is just a continuation of what's always happened. Um, so then do you think that the uptick in hate crimes that we've seen in probably the last, uh, like between two and five years, um, is a, is like a. I don't know how else to describe it other than a, a bit of an emotional purge and that from that will be a little better as people see these horrible things happen and they're motivated to be more accepting or hmm. it's just more of the same. So, you know, uh, El Paso is really uh, a referendum for the country to really think about this. So we've had this rhetoric from the president uh, from the very beginning of his campaign to be president mm-hmm. against Mexicans or against Hispanics or Latinx people. Um and uh, 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 trying to delegitimize mm-hmm. the Americanness of uh, uh, Latino people mm-hmm. with his attack on a Mexican judge overseeing Trump University and so forth, and and uh, uh, mm-hmm. denationalizing him, so to speak, and and so we've seen sort of these dehumanizing things that the president has done with the community, and this is the culmination of that when you begin to dehumanize people and you segregate them and then you use the force of law against them mm-hmm. then you embolden and empower the sort of you know fringe elements to uh do terrible things mm-hmm. and so that's that's what we've seen and el paso is the first of this in that sense i mean we've seen little you know 
one-to-one, mm-hmm. you know, speak English, this kind of thing around the country and so mm-hmm. forth, um, and ice raids and things like that and fear-mongering. But, I mean, this was a, uh, a targeting mm-hmm. uh, of the community itself and designed to be so. There's a reason why he went to that Walmart. I mean, everybody mm-hmm. who knows anything about Hispanics in the United States knows that that particular Walmart mm-hmm. in El Paso is huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a superstore. Mm-hmm. It's where all, you know, it's where Mexicans cross the bridge from Ciudad Juarez mm-hmm. to shop there. I mean, everybody goes there. Everybody sure. knows to go to that Walma. You know, um, he drove 10 hours to get there and he knew that. Yeah. So, I mean, that was not a random act. That was a designed, uh, decision planned out. Um, and it's, you know, written he, in, he his, knew what he was going to find yeah, when he got there. That's yeah. And, and this, you know, it's in his manifesto. So, um, I think that, you know, this particular event is really a referendum for people to stop and think, you know, mm-hmm. is this enough? Is this the point where this rhetoric Mm-hmm. has gotten to a point where, you know, it needs to stop, we need to stop it, we need to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, that that's what every American should grapple with. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, <laughs> you know, only only they can decide, you know, what, you know, how they feel about that. And I would mm-hmm. think that, you know, that they would uh, uh, be against that rhetoric and against that type of leadership. Sure. Um, but I don't think it's going to go away in a sense because the leadership's not going to go away. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people really follow. I mean, that's the thing I saw in Siler City. You know, once uh, the local uh, leaders in Siler City wanted the immigration service to come in and round people up and so forth, we got this sort of anti-immigrant David Duke clan rally. Because you embolden that you know, mm-hmm. lunatic fringe to be open and to be out. And instead of shaming them so that they, you know, crawl back into, mm-hmm. you know, dark places and stay there, uh, you embolden them to come out and do things. And unfortunately, you know, we may have political leaders that not only embolden them, but, you know, want to use them in that force and that energy and that emotion, and all of it negative and dark, but use that energy, you know, to, you know, enhance themselves, to get elected, to get power, to do, you know, to set their agendas. Mm-hmm. And that's really, I think, the, the referendum that people have to grapple with. Mm-hmm. Um, as as to whether or not you know we're going to go and challenge that and reject it, or whether we're going to accept it. I see. Um, so I think that's that's really a kind of a big big thing. Mm-hmm. You know, in the manifesto, and people read this manifesto. Um, uh, the shooter talks about this great replacement. This is the idea, mm-hmm. you know, among white supremacists, is that there's a great replacement that's happening demographically. And I've just talked about the two demographic trends. Um, you know, that replacement is happening, um, because of demographic trends and births, mm-hmm. not necessarily happening because of immigration. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's not going to change anything. You could, you know, seal up the border, you can wall it off. It's not going to change what's going to play out in the mm-hmm. next 30 years. Sure. The country is still going to change. The, the white population is going to drop below 50%. Nothing is going to change that at this point, mm-hmm. unless there is a massive intervention that would be horrible and terrible, which is kind of what you're maybe you know thinking about. Um, but I don't see that that happening. So that that's going to play out the way it's going to play out. So this great replacement idea is um, is uh, I mean it's I mean, what can you, what, what can you call it other than than crazy? Mm-hmm. But uh, instead of, you know, a great replacement, what's happening is a great replenishment in which the country is replenishing itself as it's done in the past with a new group of immigrants from another part of the world. 
And those newcomers are going to have kids. Those kids are going to grow up. They're going to go to higher education. They're going to make businesses. They're going to revitalize this country in much the same way that the Irish did or the Italians did. Mm -hmm. So uh, I see it as, you know, the great replenishment that's happening now in the United States. And very traditional for us to do that. Ebony, you've been listening very thoughtfully. Yes. Uh, Hi, Ebony. You're going to school in Texas, yes? Yes. Uh, Do you have any thoughts you'd like to add? I do have a couple questions for you. Um, As far as your team that you're leading, is it a co-ed team or is it male dominant? We have the Jets and we have the Lady Jets, which is really kind of stupid. (laughs) But that's what they call them. And you guys so, play the sharks, of course. Yes, you yeah. play the sharks <laughs> when you're a very, jet. Very well choreographed. You're, uh, yes, you're, you're a jet. You're a jet forever. Um, as far as socializ- socialization of uh, male or female athletes, is there a difference you see in the community um, as they're engaging? Um, yes, uh, and I've been writing about this. So, um, what we've seen over uh, a, sh- a few short years is a, a rise of football femenino in the Latina community or the Latinx community here in North Carolina and probably in other parts of the South as well. Um, so, uh, you know, when these workers came to work at these plants, uh, they formed these uh, ligas, these sort of independent leagues where the men play on the weekends and they let off all the steam and they drink beer and they have a great time and, you know, it's it's their third space. You know, it's, you know they got mm-hmm. work, and they got home, and then they got you know the field. That's their third space. And what we've seen happen uh, over the past several years is these ligas create these women's teams, and uh, they have proliferated and grown. Um, they are a space for women to come together and and be athletes and sort of redefine themselves and redefine their roles within the household. Um, redefine their identities in many ways to look at themselves as athletes or as football players. And um, those particular teams have, you know, exploded. And these leagues have really learned that, you know, the guys, when the guys come and play in their leagues, they just come and play and they play really hard and they leave. Uh, The women, when they come, they bring their kids and they bring their boyfriends and husbands and they bring their entire community and they bring food or they sell food and they sell drinks and the league owners are like, wow, we make more money, you know, with the women's, you know, leagues than we do with the men because mm. they're bringing in this whole social group. Um, so, uh, you know, there's always been like a Lady Jets team. We started the Lady Jets at the same time we started the boys team. And uh, they play in different seasons. The, the women play in the spring and the men play in the fall. Um, um, but I think what's really interesting for me is uh, uh, as a writer and, uh, you know, uh, writing about this is seeing these leagues sort of proliferate and grow and really uh, change the sort of uh, role of women in the household. So in the household, like I remember years ago, uh, uh, wives would complain that their husbands are never home, like they're working six days a week at the plant. And then on Sundays, the one day, you know, when the family can get together, well, you know, he's off playing, you know, soccer, football all day uh, at the field. Well, now she says, well, you know what? You know, now I go on Sundays and I play. Or we play together. Like he has his games, I have my games, and we watch each other's games. And, you know, my house is now decorated with trophies, you know, for my individual achievements and championships that I've won in my leagues along with his. So, you know, it's it's, um, 
it's 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 changed the role or the identity of some women within the community. With we were talking about uh, what happened in El Paso, w- even with your teams that you're leading, do you find some responsibility to debunk some of that rhetoric or like talk to your um, players and say this is what's happening in our society and this is our responsibility to fight it or do you try to I don't know well uh, you know with um, with teenagers uh, you know (laughs) their perception of the news or things that are happening can be really limited because they're in their own worlds a lot and um, so I asked them a little bit about a couple of them about El Paso and you know the two boys that I asked uh, what (laughs) El Paso what yeah it's not it's not the reality because uh, they're too young, but you know their parents are fully aware of it and kind of scared about it. Um, uh, that doesn't mean that it won't penetrate their consciousness eventually. Cause yeah. I think it will because it's you know it's lasting within the uh, news cycle, and people will talk about it. And you know, there's a general sort of fear now in the community that Latino people are going to be targeted or are targeted already uh, for violence. Um, so uh, you know, it might you know penetrate their minds. But, you know, we've encountered as a team uh, terrible prejudice against us when we played all-white teams. And um, uh, uh, we've dealt with that in a variety of different ways. We've talked about it and we deal with it on the field. And, you know, we try and play better and we try and score more goals and crush, you know, <laughs> our prejudiced opponents and make them feel bad. Um, uh, so we try and motivate ourselves with that. Mm. Um, but we also talk about it as a as a group, and you know what it what it what it, what that feels like. You know what, what you know. How do you cope and deal with uh, racist comments aimed at you? And um, you know, these kids are really young, but they've endured some of that already in their young lives. Mm-hmm. And I'm not so young, and I've endured that you know all my life. Mm-hmm. So I have a different attitude about it than maybe they would. Uh, you know, for them, it's more acute and it makes them very angry. And for me, you know, it's just another day. Mm. So, um, uh, so, you know, but we can talk about it from those two different, you know, sort of points of view and, and sort of hash it out. Uh, what is the demographic makeup of your teams usually? Uh, they're predominantly Latino or Latinx. Okay. I'm thinking that maybe that's going to change because, uh, you know, Solid City, uh, its poultry industry collapsed mm-hmm. in about 2008, you know, with the Great Recession. And um, so for like 10 years, we didn't have like a poultry plant. Well, two years ago, a new company came and um, um, bought the one of the old plant space and renovated it and rebuilt it. And it's a massive plant now that uh, will employ 12 to 1400 people and mm-hmm. They have like a feed mill and hatchery and, uh, you know, sort of ancillary businesses that go along with that plant. And uh, they're looking for workers. And, you know, my understanding, you know, the the rumor mill says that, you know, they they can't staff that Mm -hmm. the way that they want to because they can't find the workers for it, Um, uh, despite having immigrant workers in the plant. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So uh, right now that particular company has another plant near Mount Olive that is staffed by Haitians, mm-hmm. people from Haiti with temporary protective status mm-hmm. after the earthquake um, brought into the country 
uh, humanitarian reasons and um, uh, were provided this temporary legal status. They've been working in that poultry plant in Mount Olive. So I'm thinking that, you know, we'll get some Haitian workers eventually in Souter City mm -hmm. or, or anywhere else. The plant will do whatever it needs to do to find its labor force. If it needs to get workers from Haiti that are on temporary visas, it will. If it needs to get workers from Southeast Asia, it will. It will do whatever it can to stay in business. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the team's makeup might change. But if they get, you know, other immigrants to come and they have kids, they're all going to play football. They're going to play soccer. Sure. Yeah. All right. So um, what is what happens with these kids? So you've, you've coached for, uh, you said, 18 seasons. Um, what happens with these kids after they graduate? Um, so, uh, the, um, if you read like a home in the field, which mm -hmm. I wrote in like 2006, there's this epilogue at the end and you kind of find out what happens to these guys and this team post-graduation and where they are. And it's actually kind of sad. I remember talking to my editor about it and he was saying, you know, this is kind of a downer. Mm -hmm. I said, well, this is not a Disney story. I mean, yes, you know, we go on and, and have this sort of triumphant moment, but you know, the reality is, is that. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity that is cut off for these particular kids. Uh, over time, that particular team, they've done quite well. Mm -hmm. uh, they've A lot of them have gone into the trades. So they've become plumbers or electricians, construction workers, welders. And uh, they have gone on to have successful careers within the trades. Some of them have their own construction companies. Some of them are trying to build their own companies. Uh, very entrepreneurial, and they're all kind of making it. Um, a lot of them have gained uh, status or protection through Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, mm -hmm. and that's helped them tremendously. And then the kids in between then and now, uh, those who are U.S. citizens, you know, they've gone on to college, they've gone on to, uh, I've had several of them, uh, come to the university, come to UNC Chapel Hill, and gone on to have careers today. You know, they're all aspirational for higher education, um, if they can afford it or if they have the legal status. So I have kids last year that are going to ECU this year, App State. Uh, they're all looking for, you know, places to land in terms of higher education and move on with their lives. You mentioned um, the Home on the Field. Uh, there was a film adaptation of that. There was a a documentary television series mm -hmm. uh, called Los Jets and produced by Jennifer Lopez. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, there was. Which can be found on Amazon. Shameless. It can be found on Amazon. <laughs> and you can stream it on Tubi TV too. Okay. For free. <laughs> In case you have ethical qualms with Amazon, that's fair. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Paul, thank you for coming in. We appreciate talking to you. All right. Uh, and Ebony as well. Thank you for making time. Thank you. All right. <laughs>